from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, good afternoon and welcome to this Friday edition of Washington Watch. I'm Jody Heiss, the Senior Vice President here at the Family Research Council and your Friday host. Thank you so much for making Washington Watch a part of your day today. All right, we've got a lot to cover, and let me just say this as we get underway. For the last several weeks, we have been having a special segment on our Friday program on election integrity. We are actually going to bypass that today because there is so much in the news. In fact, there's more than we're even going to be able to cover today. But uh, stay, tuned to, stay tuned. We'll get back to that topic next week. But for now, let me give you the highlights of today. The U.S. Senate will be working through the weekend to pass a spending supplemental to borrow another $95 billion for foreign aid. We now resume post-closure debate on the motion to proceed. If we don't reach a time agreement, we will hold the next vote on the motion to proceed at approximately 7 p.m. tonight. But I hope our Republican colleagues can work with us to reach an agreement on amendments so we can move this process along. Well, that, of course, was Senate Democrat leader Chuck Schumer earlier today showing the urgency that he feels to borrow more money for Ukraine. But the big question that so many are asking right now is how in the world can we spend billions more dollars to fortify Ukraine's border when our own southern border remains wide open? A great question, and we'll get to that with Arizona Congressman Andy Biggs here in just a few moments. And then while the Democrat-controlled Senate is planning to work through the weekend to spend billions of more dollars for Ukraine, the Congressional Budget Office, also known as the CBO, they released its latest fiscal projections uh, this past week, and the forecast is extremely grim. Yeah, if you can see that, the CBO is anticipating that our nation is going to be taking on an additional $19 trillion in debt in the next 10 years. Now, that comes to an extra trillion dollars every six months, and we're right on schedule for that. We just passed, as you know, $34 trillion in debt, and already they're saying in May, we're going to hit $35 trillion, and now projections $54 trillion by 2034. Uh, so what does all this mean, and what's it going to take to right the ship? Well, I'll be talking about all of this with Heritage Foundation Research Fellow Joel Griffith in just a little while. And over the past 24 hours, 24 hours, the media has been abuzz over the mental fitness of President Biden, or the lack thereof, uh, after the release of the special counsel from Robert Hur, his, the, the report that he came out on the president's mishandling of classified documents, which concluded, no surprise, that charges should not be filed against the president. I'm well-meaning, and I'm an elderly man, and I know what I'm doing. I've been president, and I put this country back on its feet. I don't need his recommendation. It's How totally bad out. is your memory, and can you continue as president? My memory is so bad, I let you speak. That's, uh, that's, you that's my memory. memory has gotten worse, No, Biden? look, my memory is not good. My memory is fine. Well, that was the president in an exchange with some reporters last night. And amazingly, you know, it didn't help his argument at all that just minutes after that exchange, the president mistook Mexico for Egypt and then also made these remarks just hours before speaking to House Democrats. When I we pushed all these programs, I said, I'm going to be a president for everybody, whether you live in a red state or a green state. And making Roe v. Ward the law of the land. The law of the land. Roe v. Word. Or Roe v. Ward. Or maybe he was just trying to mimic Hillary Clinton and say, what difference does it make anyways? But whatever the case, while the president was stumbling 
all over his lips again. The legacy media was focused on the special counsel's description of President Biden as, quote, an elderly man with a poor memory. But friends, here is the issue that we here in Washington Watch are going to focus on because this is the issue. It's corruption. It's a corrupted justice system that treats President Biden differently than it treated and is treating former President Trump, who allegedly did virtually the very same thing. So does this represent yet another example of our two-tiered system of justice? Well, I'll be talking about that with former U.S. Assistant Attorney General Jeff Clark in just a little while. So a lot to cover. And before we get underway, let me just officially say thank you to each of you who signed the petition urging the U.S. House Ethics Committee to investigate Congresswoman Omar's concerning comments that she made several days ago. There were more than 24,000 of you who signed that petition. And yesterday, FRC Action delivered those signatures to members of the House Ethics Committee in the Capitol. And as Tony often says on this program, our republic was made for participants, not for spectators. So let me again just say a huge shout out and a thank you to each of you who participated in signing that that uh, petition. We appreciate it so much. And of course, the website is TonyPerkins.com. There's tons of resources there for you, including notes of today's program, as well as archives of previous programs and just tons of resources, so be sure to check it out, TonyPerkins.com. All right, let's jump into it. The Senate plans to extend their time in Washington throughout the weekend as Senate uh, Democrat leader Chuck Schumer is trying to pass and push a $95 billion supplemental foreign aid for Ukraine and Israel. And of course, it's going to be paid with, you guessed it, borrowed money. No offsets, no set-asides. And yesterday, the uh, Senate cleared the 60-vote threshold to advance this particular bill, which certainly signifies that probably this is going to pass the Senate, in spite of the fact of some senators trying to delay the process. But why is there such urgency to defend another country and their border when our own border is under invasion? And if the Senate does pass this spending bill, when it comes over to the House of Representatives, what can we expect there? Well, joining me now to discuss this is Congressman Andy Biggs. He serves on the House Judiciary Committee and the Oversight Committee. He represents the 5th District of the great state of Arizona. Congressman Biggs, always great to see you. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Thank you so much. Always good to see you, too. We miss you, man. All right. Uh, well, let's jump right into this. Uh, you know, the Senate seemingly extremely desperate to pass this uh, enormous bill, another $95 billion for Ukraine, and they say they're going to work through the weekend. Just uh, your 30,000-foot view on uh, what they're talking about right now. Well, so this is a massive spending bill that I think, is, as you mentioned, is going to pass. Uh, they got passed cloture, indicates pretty clearly that they have the votes. Uh, their problem, of course, is they don't want to do any pay for it. And uh, it's going to then come over to the House. And we're some of us are saying you, you can't you can't do these things as one big honking bill, which is what they're trying to do. You're going to have to keep them separate and you're going to have to try to find ways to pay for these things because we owe so much money uh, already. And the other thing is, Jody, you know this. Uh, Ukraine was considered one of the most corrupt nations in the world prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which is wrong, obviously. But the problem is Ukraine still has a corruption problem. And so where does that money go once they get it there? Great question. And you're exactly right. The corruption in Ukraine is uh, is well known and it's known throughout the entire world. Uh, and look, no, at the same time, nobody wants Ukraine to fall to Russia. Uh, and, and frankly, many of us feel like Israel needs the aid even more than Ukraine. But underneath all of this, uh, Congressman Biggs, how do we deal with the reality of trying to help other nations and trying to secure their borders when our own border is wide open to who knows who is coming into this country? 
Well, I think that's a, uh, that's an immoral play. I think that anti-American Democrats really want to keep our border open and send our money elsewhere. And so when you look at it, uh, we did a good thing. The best thing that Mike Johnson did as speaker was to pass a, an, an Israel funding supplemental um, and make sure we could pay for it, take, find money somewhere else in the budget to pay for that without having to borrow it. That's a good thing. In the meantime, you got we've got to say no more money, uh, not just on the Ukraine issue, but on the Green New Deal stuff. Uh, no more money to UNRWA, which is funding uh, Hamas in Israel. No more money for this wayward, lawless administration until they actually enforce our own laws. We don't need, they actually even need more border policy. What we need is enforcement of the border. Well, there's no question about that. And you and I have been to the border together. Uh, and we've seen this. Our, our laws there are just completely being ignored and overlooked. Uh, but it does concern me in light of the border issue that you just brought up that Republicans, apparently right now in the Senate especially, are willing to sacrifice the biggest leverage we have on this spending bill, and that is securing our own border. Why in the world would they give up that that leverage uh, and just pass a border uh, security bill for Ukraine and totally ignore ours? Well, that is the big question. I mean, uh, they don't know leverage. I, I, I say this a lot. They, they don't understand when they do have leverage, and they're not using this leverage. The leverage is, uh, you may, maybe you have it on the Ukraine funding bill, but you're certainly going to have it in a couple of weeks on the next continuing resolution. So why aren't you using those spending bills, which the founders gave the House that leverage point against the executive branch, the spending, to get them to enforce it. And Jody, I can't explain their motivations. All I can say is that they fail on that. Yeah, I can't explain it either. I was hoping you'd be able to give us some sort of insight. It just seems like uh, we waste opportunities by doing away with points of leverage that we have. And our own border seems to me to be the biggest leverage point that we have. Uh, wrapping up, final question for you. Obviously, we have an extremely razor-thin majority in the House, uh, and not everyone in the, uh, not all Republicans agree on the agree on the tactics. Uh, but what do you anticipate happening in the House when this spending bill comes over? Well, I think that, um, that they're going to have a tough time. We are urging. We have to make sure that. Maybe your your folks can can help the speaker understand this. That he should not keep that as a standalone bill, where excuse me, as a single bill with Ukraine, Taiwan, Israel, etc., all in one deal. Because what I think he will do, if that's the case, he might put it on and try to put it on suspension and use the rules so that we can't amend it, we can't work on it, we can't try to fix it, we can't try to leverage it. And if that happens. Uh, it's just it's just going to be more money to Ukraine that we we simply don't know where it's going. And don't forget, we're doing things like paying for their government, their retirement system, providing uh, you know seeds and, and subsidies to their farmers. That's all part and parcel of this Ukraine bill. Congressman Andy Biggs of Arizona, always great to see you, my friend. Thank you for joining us on Washington Watch. Keep the torch ablaze. All right, friends, coming up, we've got all this foreign aid spending. And it's coming at the same time that our own national debt continues to spiral out of control. We'll talk about all of that right out of right after the break. Stay tuned. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific 
specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. Welcome back. Hope you've had a fantastic week. Thank you for joining us on Washington Watch. I'm your host, Jody Heiss. All right. This week, while some in the Senate are working to borrow yet another $95 billion, the Congressional Budget Office, also known as the CBO, released a new forecast, which indicates that the federal government's national debt is set to reach a massive $54 trillion dollars by 2034. That's just 10 years away. Uh, That comes to about an extra trillion dollars every six months. That additional 19 trillion that we're talking about in debt will be partially due to higher interest expenses on our already uh, out of control debt. But what will result from the economic damage from this unchecked spending? Uh, These are questions that need answers, and joining me now to discuss this is Joel Griffith. He's a research fellow in the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Joel, welcome back to Washington Watch. Great to have you. Hey, really glad to be on the show tonight. Thanks. Well, listen, let's, uh, $54 trillion. I mean, that is even difficult to say. I can't even fathom the amount of money we're talking about here in just 10, 10 more years, $54 trillion. Your reaction to those numbers? Um, it's absolutely astounding. And you're right. These numbers are so mind-boggling. I try to break it down per family. And if you look at what we owe right now per family in terms of the debt, we owe $400,000 per family in federal debt. We're expected to add another quarter million dollars per family over the next 10 years And you mentioned the interest payments. Yes, this is huge. We're already paying around $10,000 per family per year just on the interest on the federal debt. And that is going to nearly double to close to $20,000 per family per year just on the interest component of the national debt over the next decade. And to keep that in perspective as well, we're already spending right now on the interest about what we spend on the entirety of our national defense budget. And within 10 years, 
the new estimates are that we might be spending close to twice every year just on the interest relative to what we're spending on our military. This is unsustainable. It's unsustainable. It's just absolutely frightening to consider where we are headed if we don't get this thing right. And I, I do want to go down that path with you to discuss that particular aspect of this whole argument. But before we get to that, yesterday, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was on Capitol Hill and had this exchange. I want you to see it and get your reaction. If we don't course correct, the federal deficit may very well reach a point where no one's willing to take on our government-issued debt. Is that a possibility? It could, in an extreme case, be a possibility. I see no sign of that now. But, of course, we need to stay on a fiscally sustainable path. All right. I want to get your reaction to this, but particularly the last comment. She said we need to stay on a fiscally sustainable path, as you just mentioned a while ago. Are we on that path right now? No, there's two major problems with what Janet Yellen said, and there's no excuse for it, given her position of power and her education. Number one, by suggesting that we need to stay on a sustainable path, she's saying we're on one right now. Well, that is absolutely ludicrous. We have been off that path for several years, and it didn't start with President Biden. The the tail end of President Trump's term was absolutely outrageous as well in terms of the debt we are taking on. We We are already on the path to unsustainability. But number two, she said that she sees no sign of investor demand drawing up for our federal debt. That is outright ludicrous. I actually took a look at the numbers right uh, today, earlier on. We actually have seen a drop off in the amount of federal debt that foreign investors own. They've been selling our debt. And get this, over the last two and a half years, foreign investors have only been willing to purchase about one penny of every new dollar of federal debt that we've taken on. In years past, foreign investors bought about one third of our federal debt. And when we have foreign demand for debt, that actually helps us because it keeps those interest rates down. What we see right now with investor demand drawing up for that debt, that means that the federal government has to pay more to those who will lend us money. And when you see interest rates on our federal debt rise, Well, that means that private capital, they have to compete with higher rates as well. And that trickles down directly to us as consumers. It means we end up paying more for our auto loans, credit cards, and our home mortgage. And just one more point on that. If we see overall interest rates long-term increase by just one percentage point because of this explosion of federal debt, think about what that does to your mortgage payment. A 1% interest rate hike on your mortgage means around $400 a month extra in interest for your home. Wow. All right. So from my time in Congress, one of the one of the big questions that many of us ask over and over and over, and I guess really no one really knows the answer to this, but we've got to be getting closer. Is there a line in the sand? Is there a point in which we absolutely must change course or we are headed to an economic collapse, a total disaster? At what point do we get to that edge that we're at the point of no return. Well, there are multiple ways this can pan out. None of the scenarios are good. We could end up with a long-term relative decline in our prosperity. If you look at us versus Western Europe, for instance, which have much larger governments, typical middle-class families aren't doing as well. Typical middle-class family, for instance, here earns about $12,000 more per year than in Germany, for instance. That would be one avenue. That's not great. But you could also see something that is similar to happened in uh, Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain several years ago, where they saw the bottom drop out of their economy with soaring interest rates, soaring inflation, and unemployment going to close to 20% in some of those countries. And then, of course, you have the very extreme examples of governments that get too far too large and a central bank that is out of control. Look at places in South America like Argentina and Venezuela, where inflation isn't just 5 or 6% a year, which is quite high. It's sometimes in the triple digits every year. None of these scenarios are good. And we need to have Congress people get on the ball, address these problems, and recognize uh, we are in dire straits if we do not make changes now. Wow. Joel Griffith from the Heritage Foundation, thank you for all the incredible work that you do and all your team over there. We are greatly 
Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on Washington Watch this evening. Thanks for having me this evening. All right, friends, coming up, a special counsel report released yesterday revealed that there will be no charges filed against President Biden for his mishandling of classified documents. Strange. And President Trump seemed to do allegedly the same thing. We're going to dive much deeper into this right after the break, so don't go anywhere. We'll be back. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroicfaith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroicfaith. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Glad to have you joining us on this Friday edition. I'm Jody Heiss, a Senior Vice President here at FRC, and glad to have you. All right, yesterday, President Biden held a, a short press conference, uh, and the, the entire purpose of which was to try to squelch the special counsel, uh, Robert Hers, his report investigating the mishandling of uh, President Biden with some classified documents. But in all reality, I think the the attempt to squash all that just totally backfired. And it specifically backfired in the arena of people beginning to ask about his mental capacity. Is he up for another term? Uh, and, and these types of questions. And of course, he stumbled over and over with a multitude of answers. But as he was wrapping up his remarks, uh, he answered a question that was shouted out to him from a reporter about Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's handling of Israel's war in Hamas, and he gave a, a troubling answer. Quite I'm of the view, as you know, that the conduct of the response in, Gaza, in the Gaza Strip has been um, over the top. Wow. I, I hope you heard that. The president said Israel's handling of this whole war uh, going after Hamas, who attacked them brutally, that Israel's response has been over the top. That's a pretty chilling statement in and of itself. Uh, and joining me now to discuss this is Leela Gilbert. Uh, she is a senior FRC senior fellow for International Religious Freedom. Leela, welcome back to Washington Watch. Great to see you. Thank you very much. It's nice to see you as well, Jody. 
Well, listen, you lived in Israel for quite a time, uh, and you you have a unique perspective, a unique understanding of Israel and what they're facing. Uh, and so let me just start with this. How do you react just personally from your experience of being there? What kind of reaction do you have from President Biden's comments here about Israel going over the top in their response to Hamas? I don't think anybody could ever go over the top in the response to Hamas after what they did in the first place on October 7th. But I think you have to look back at the initial response by the president when it first happened was quite genuine and it appeared to be from the heart. And he was he was grieved in, and actually uh, his first uh, in conversations with Netanyahu and the others were very, very much in keeping with, I think, all of us who were just living in a state of horror of what happened, you know, not only on the 7th, which was a horror story of the worst kind. And I can't, I could never watch those videos in my life to see what really happened, but I know what happened. And also to see our friends. I mean, I've got many friends now. I lived in Israel more than 10 years and their sons were almost immediately deployed. They don't know where they are. They didn't know where they were at first, for sure. They didn't know if they were going to march into a bloodbath themselves. And all of the uproar, everyone had to leave. The men had to leave their jobs. They had to be deployed immediately. The whole thing was a nightmare. That was over the top, not because they shouldn't have done it, but because it was almost unbelievable to people like me that had been there all those years and many little wars and uproars. But there's been nothing like this since the revolution, or since Israel became a country. So all that to say, I think Biden responded well at the beginning. But I think what happened to him was that he started getting a lot of input from people like uh, people that were involved with the Obama administration that are very close, closely aligned with him. And I think he's kind of changed his tune since. Yeah, I think that's a good observation, Leela. And I, I, I can't say that I disagree with that assessment at all. If if there is any part of this, though, that is over the top, it is Hamas. I mean, what they did right. is absolutely unthinkable and evil in every way. And for us to say Israel, in essence, does not have the right to defend themselves, is is, is and when they do defend themselves, that they're going over the top, is is unbelievable to me to think about. So the president, I want to hit on this uh, with you as well, Leela. The president's dropped the ball in many regards, foreign policy, what Israel, what's happening now with Israel. But Israel's not the only place. The Middle East is not the only place. Can you share with us what's been going on in Nigeria, for example? Yes. We, well, we've been following Nigeria actually for a decade. And it's You know, we have a common denominator here, and that common denominator is radical Islam. And nobody really talks about that because, you know, we don't want to we don't want to insult good Muslims or anything else. But the fact is, both Hamas and Hezbollah in the north of Israel and Nigeria and the whole swath across Africa that's taking place against Christians. It's all coming from the same source. It's coming from radical Islamists with different names on their militias and so forth. And Nigeria was not mentioned at all in the State Department's report on religion. It's been ignored, and we've been pushing, pushing, pushing on this. And former Congressman Frank Wolf has been a great hero because he keeps bringing it up and he knows how to address these things. But honestly, there, there were more Christians killed in Nigeria the last two years than in all the rest of the world put together. And it never shows up. It's not talked about. And these are slaughterhouse cases. They're all October 7th, not quite to the degree of, of sexual violence, but murders, you know, and the survivors are left with nothing. Their houses are burned to the ground. So this is a, it's all part of the same game, but it's a different country. We're going to have to leave it there. Leela Gilbert, thank you so much for the work you do for international religious freedom. All right, friends, stay tuned. we got much more to cover. You don't want to miss any of it. Stay tuned. We'll be back in just a moment. 
Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clausen, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroicfaith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroicfaith. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled a man's guide to standing for life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Great to have you joining us today. We appreciate you entrusting this time to us. All right, we've got all sorts of things that are happening right now. Uh, and I want to, before we get into our next guest, we've talked a lot about the border uh, in recent weeks. And even today, it's come up in the midst of all the other issues taking place. And I opened the program thanking those of you who signed the petition for Congresswoman Omar for the House Ethics Committee to investigate her and her allegiance to our country. And 24,000 of you signed that petition, which was delivered yesterday. Well, FRC Action is now going to deliver a another petition next week to the House leadership regarding our southern southern border and urging them to use every leverage point they have to stop the inflow of drugs and trafficking and terrorists and criminals and disease and who knows what else coming across our southern border. And we would love for you to participate with us again in signing this petition as we deliver it. And to do so, you can do it easily. You can participate easily. Just text the word border. Text the word border to 67742. And you can also simply go to frcaction.org border. Either way, sign the petition. We plan on delivering it next week. All right. Um, Yesterday, we've been talking about this, uh, uh, and it's unfolding, really, literally in the last 24 hours, but Special Counsel Robert Hur's report 
investigating the president's mishandling of classified documents from his time as vice president came and the report recommended that there be no charges filed against the president. It was a 345 page report, something in that ballpark. It had photos of tattered boxes that contained White House files that were stashed away in his garage. Uh, I, but look, in, this, in all of this that took place, the report kind of ended by saying they were sympathetic to the president, and if he were to go before a jury, he would simply present himself as a, as a sympathetic kind of figure, uh, as a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. So that's it. So was he uh, kind of mentally struggling while he was vice president? This was years ago. Anyways, to unpack all of this and to help us uh, get to the bottom of it is Jeff Clark. He's a former U.S. Assistant Attorney General and now the Senior Fellow and Director of Litigation at the Center for Renewing America. Jeff, welcome back to Washington Watch. Appreciate you coming back. Well, Congressman, uh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Well, listen, you were on the program just 24 hours ago when all of this started breaking. You were on yesterday with Tony, and we we just wanted to have you back here uh, to unpack it as so much actually came down the pipe after the program ended yesterday. Uh, so the president claims that this report is uh, somehow exonerating him by the, the special counsel. Uh, is that what's going on? Well, I mean, I think it's a whitewash, but I don't think it's an exoneration, if that difference makes sense. Uh, Congressman, look, uh, the, one of the most striking things about the report uh, is, uh, to me, in the executive summary, there's a discussion where they say uh, Biden has a ghostwriter, and the ghostwriter is going over things from the past that they're going to cover in the book, and they're going to cover some classified information. And Biden, you know, communicates with him and says, well, I've managed after some looking, I've found where the classified material is. Okay. So what does this show? This shows that he knowingly took, and the report concludes this, uh, information, classified information, including up to the, the SCI level, the sensitive compartmentalized information level, which is extremely high uh, and is only supposed to be looked at in a SCIF. Uh, and, you know, I've been in SCIFs before, especially the SCIF at the Justice Department. And he took them home instead, and he definitely knew he had them, and he knew roughly where they were. He started looking them, he, for them, and he found them. So nevertheless, the her report says, well, he has a poor memory, and he might you know, have sort of misplaced documents, et cetera. That's all not relevant. Like at the moment, he clearly has, I think, senility. There shouldn't be any senility exception to the, the criminal law. But back at the time where he was at least doing this uh, biography with his ghostwriter, he knew that he had classified information. So he clearly meets the knowingly test of the statute. Yet uh, President Biden, uh, sorry, President Trump is getting prosecuted for uh, under the Espionage Act uh, in, in violation, I think, of the Presidential Records Act. And, and Biden, who at the time was either vice president or senator for these documents, he's not getting prosecuted at all. It's a complete double standard. It's a whitewash. And, you know, Biden's trying to sell it at an even better level than that to say, look, that I was exonerated. They found me essentially not guilty of any criminal conduct. Well, I, whereas I actually think much like the Comey situation with Hillary Clinton, they did find all the elements of the crime, but they're just deciding not to go forward against it, I think, for political reasons, Congressman. Yeah, listen, I, I agree wholeheartedly with you. Uh, and by the way, we're, we're talking with uh, Jeff Clark, uh, former U.S. Assistant Attorney General and now Senior Fellow and Director of Litigation at the Center for Renewing America. I, I appreciate you bringing up the comparison between what's going on now and what was going on with President Trump. I mean, this seems to me and to a whole lot of other people that this is highlighting, again, a two-tiered system of justice here. I go down this path a little bit further as you were just beginning to, to do so, the difference between that, the way Joe Biden is being treated right now versus uh, Donald Trump. 
Well, it's really striking. And yes, I agree. We have a two-tiered system of justice at this point. We have massive lawfare on multiple fronts against President Trump. And what we have with President Biden is a kind of rear guard whitewash action to defend him. It couldn't be more striking. I think President Trump has been handed on a silver platter a selective prosecution defense that he can use against the documents case that is pending in in Florida. And you know, look, they, they, they try to say, even in this her report, that uh, Biden is less culpable than President Trump, even if you grant everything about President Trump, which I don't. And I don't buy that for a second, because you look at this and they they make findings that Biden basically took notes in notebooks of his classified briefings, including about things like Afghanistan and other security protocols about sources and methods. And then he took the notebooks home with them. So, Congressman, look, the way this works, and I know this from personal experience, even near the end of the Trump administration, I got a very sensitive classified briefing. I'd never seen so many different compartments of security protection on that particular product. I had to go review it uh, you know, in a skiff or under lock and key uh, in a lock bag. And then uh, when I took notes on it, the notes, and this was very clear in any security briefing you receive about access to classified information, if you take notes on a classified document, it's like the transit of property in math, it acquires the same classification status as the document that you're looking at and you're taking notes on. So when I left the Justice Department, not only did I return because uh, my office uh, you know, could serve as a skiff under certain circumstances. I returned the copy of the report that I looked at, but I also marked my notes with all the same classification uh, markings. And then I took it up to the command center, which has the main skiff for the whole Justice Department at Main Justice, and I dropped it off. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what you're briefed to do. Biden had been in government a lot longer than I had. I served about six and a half years across two different administrations. I mean, Biden's kind of as old as the sun, and he would have had to have gotten multiple briefings. For him to take classified notes in a series of notebooks home with him to Virginia or Delaware uh, and to the Biden Penn Center, it's just inexcusable. And it's clearly conduct that uh, needs to be examined very closely. Oh, absolutely. And you look, uh, and I've been in a skiff many, many times, just as you mentioned, and that's exactly right. You end up having to, you can't even take your notes with you. You have to leave them there. But the, I look at even the raid of Mar-a-Lago. I mean, was that necessary? Uh, was there a raid on the president's home? Why, why not? Right. Total double standard there. They do a raid on President Trump and he has presidential protections. Right. And this is important in two respects. First of all, he is the font of declassification authority. And I think there's a reasonable argument that putting aside declassifying by issuing a particular memo or signing a particular form, the president has the power uh, to declassify by course of conduct. And that's, you know, I think consistent with the fact that this is a power that traces to Article 2 and to the president's ability to to be both the commander in chief as any sensitive military matters and is the chief magistrate in terms of all domestic matters. Biden did not have those protections as the vice president unless he could produce some kind of memo that said Obama delegated that power to him when he was vice president. We've never seen anything like that. I don't think it exists. And he certainly didn't have it when he was a senator. So he doesn't have these protections. And yet, what do they do with him? He gets total powder puff treatment. The FBI, you know, shows up. They, you know, talk to his lawyers. They're escorted around room to room. It's all a voluntary process. They sort of leave uh, lawyers in charge of documents for a week or, or more, uh, you know, Biden's personal lawyers. And this is not the way President Trump was treated. Instead, first we got told that uh, the FBI did the Mar-a-Lago raid on their own. Then that uh, evaporated and we saw Attorney General Garland go in front of the cameras and admit that he had ordered it. 
And then uh, Karine Jean-Pierre was simultaneously saying, oh, Biden didn't have anything to do with it. Whatever it was, it was something over at the Justice Department. And then it turned out that through FOIA requests, America First Legal managed to get information showing that the Biden, uh, that Biden himself had actually allowed access to Trump documents at the National Archives, which they then used to try to, uh, you know, pin something on Trump. So the idea that Biden, the president, had his hands totally off of going after President Trump even that is it has turned out to be a lie. And certainly the way the FBI treated Trump versus the way they treated uh, Biden is, is night and day. It, it really is. And it's startling because this reveals uh, corruption. It reveals a weaponized government going after political enemies and opponents. Uh, and in many instances, we are seeing now IRS or some of these other agencies actually going after Trump supporters. I mean, this thing starts a snowballing effect of, of a corrupt justice system, a weaponized justice system, and all of a sudden, all deemed political opponents can potentially be in the crosshairs of all of this. And yet, and this is what I want to get your comment on here, it, it seems to me that the report itself and the media now, everyone is trying to excuse this uh, classified debacle with President Biden as uh, poor memory, as a, a frail old man right now. Uh, but the issue, look, our country can survive dementia, but our country cannot survive corruption. And that is what seems to be at at place here. It is a matter of corruption, and we can't sweep that under the rug. This is something that needs to be dealt with. We are witnessing a two-tiered system of justice, and that must be addressed. How do we go about that? Well, look, we have to, to fight back. We have to expose it. So obviously, the conservative media sphere like this program is important in that regard. I think that uh, those who are under lawfare attack, and I'll count myself among those, they're trying to take Congressman Mybard license from me in D.C. They've made me one of the criminal defendants in the Fulton County case. Uh, there are others like Peter Navarro, who's just been ordered to report to jail, uh, Steve Bannon, uh, you know, the other defendants in the Fulton County action. Uh, the co-defendants in the documents case in Mar-a-Lago down in Florida uh, who were interacting with President Trump. Yet this biographer who knew that he was handling classified information because Biden told him so, they declined to prosecute him in this report, too. Again, it's a it's a double standard. I think if you can help support the legal defense of individuals who are under fire like that, that is good. I think the the most important thing is to work hard for election integrity so that we can get, uh, I think, the likely Republican nominee or vastly likely Republican nominee Donald Trump back in the White House so that we can start cleaning these things up. Because at the moment, I think the FBI is weaponized. It is politicized. We need to turn that around and we need to get it out of the business of being a massive intelligence gathering agency and, and uh, moving it back to being, you know, G-men who enforce the law. Well, I tell you, it's, it, all this is extremely frightening. Uh, to to look at, to consider, and to have people like you. I mean, the last thing we need is a weaponized government going after political opponents. And when we see it happening, now is the time to shout it out, to shine the light on it, to put a stop to it. Jeff Clark, former U.S. Assistant Attorney General and now Senior Fellow of, and Director of Litigation at the Center for Renewing America, thank you so, so much for joining us you, this evening on Washington Watch. All right, friends, this is going to wrap up this week and another powerful uh, amount of information for you. I was reminded coming into the program tonight of Psalm 14.1, and that psalm tells us that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There's, therein lies the problem, because the rest of that verse goes on and says, they are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is none who does good. When there is the absence of the acknowledgement of God, the human heart goes corrupt. It is for that reason we must keep God in the public square. We must keep you, his children, his life, in the public square as well. 
Thank you for joining us on Washington Watch. Have a great weekend. Look forward to seeing you next week here on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.